Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Well, good morning to you again and Merry Christmas. My name is Peter and I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to begin our time this morning talking about fear. Now, it's probably not what you expected of how a Christmas or Christmas Eve message would start, but I want to show you today how the birth of Jesus, how Christmas addresses our deepest fears. We all have fears. Some of them are not so serious, maybe. Many of you, or maybe some of you like me, have a fear of heights. My family, we all have a fear of bugs, but for some reason, they have designated me as the bug catcher. Um, For kids, some kids have a fear of getting lost. Uh, I remember growing up, I had a fear of getting lost because kind of like in Home Alone, I was lost um, at one point. And so even now as an adult, I'm afraid that my kids are going to be lost. And so when we're traveling, they all know, dad always says, stay tight, stay close, stay tight so that they don't get lost. Others of you have fear of snakes or public speaking. And here are a couple interesting ones. There's uh, such a thing as vestophobia, which is the fear of clothing. Thankfully, no one here is wrestling with that fear. Another is optophobia, which is the fear of opening your eyes. Some of you guys are going to put that into practice this morning during the sermon. And then there's nomophobia, the fear of being without your phone. The fear of being without your phone. How many of you feel naked if you don't have your phone on you? Probably a lot of us. And then there's just general fears of missing out. You always want to be a part of whatever is happening. So those are some not so serious ones. But then there are also really serious core identity level fears. Like the fear of failure or disappointment. And so you ask yourself the question, will I ever amount to anything? Will I make others happy? Do people approve of me? There's a fear of insignificantness or meaninglessness. Does my life even matter? If I was gone tomorrow, would anyone even notice? There's a fear of rejection, of being alone and unloved. We all have a deep need for belonging and acceptance, to be known and loved. But you think to yourself, can can I be myself? If people really knew me, would they still love me? Or if you're single, you might think, will I be single my entire life? For the parents in the room, you might have a fear of how your kids will turn out. Will they be okay? Will they make good decisions? Or you just fear how you're parenting them. Will I, will I mess up my kids? There's a fear of the future. Do things turn out okay? If things are going poorly, will they ever get better? If things are going well, well, will it last? There's a fear of of having a breakdown, of losing it, whether mentally or emotionally. There's so much being demanded of you. There's so much pressure on you that you feel like you're going to explode. There's a fear of getting bad or tragic news, like losing something or someone that you love. And of course, there's a fear of death. Will it be painful? Will the timing be okay? What about my family? Will they be okay? And there are many more. 
We all live with fears as a normal part of our lives because the world is broken and we're in darkness. Sin has corrupted everything. The world is not the way that it's supposed to be. This is not the way that God created the world. And a lot of times, nothing in life seems very certain other than the brokenness and the fear of further brokenness. Now, there are two things about fear that we should know. The first is that the fears that we have, they reveal who we are and they show us what we value, what we love and what we trust and what we need. For example, if you fear losing your family, it shows that you love and treasure your family. So our fears show us that we yearn for someone that will never leave us. They show our longing to be loved and be secure. Secondly, our fears show us that we're not God. We're not God. We're not in control. Our fears scream for someone bigger and more powerful than ourselves, for someone who can overcome and help us to overcome our fears. So instead of covering up our fears, we need to bring them into the light. And the good news for everyone living in fear and with fear is that the most repeated command that God gives us in Scripture is, fear not, don't be afraid. So we're going to look at Luke 2 this morning to see how the birth of Jesus addresses all of our fears. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Luke 2. If you're new to church or you haven't really gone through your Bible before, Luke is going to be in the New Testament, and you can also find it on the screen. Now, I know some of you who grew up in church, you're thinking, not this passage again, not Luke 2. I hear every Christmas. And to you, I say, don't be a Scrooge or a Grinch. It's Christmas. So in Luke 1, the chapter before, the angel tells Mary, who though she was a virgin, that she would conceive and bear a child, the Son of God, by the Holy Spirit. Yes, Mary knew what was about to happen and who Jesus would be. We're going to pick up starting in verse 7, chapter 2. It says, And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, watching, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from heaven and from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard as it had been told them. And he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So there are two ways that the birth of Jesus addresses our fears in this passage. 
The first is very simple. It's that Jesus comes down to where we are. Jesus comes down to where we are. So what is the fear that we see in this passage? The first and most obvious one is that the shepherds were fearful of the angel and the glory of the Lord. Because angels are not chubby, gentle little creatures as we offer picture them on clouds and on rainbows playing their harps. But they were, they were not those. They were majestic, powerful beings. And so the shepherds, they're shocked by the angel and the glory of the Lord that shone around them because it's night. And it's completely natural for sinners to be in fear when faced with the glory of the almighty, most holy God. But that's not all that the scripture is saying here, that we shouldn't be afraid of angels or God's glory, because there is going to be a day for judgment, but this day would be a day for salvation. Rather, God is also speaking to all of our personal fears as well. At the time of this announcement, when the angels came and made this announcement to the shepherds, God had not spoken to his people for over 400 years. Generations upon generations passed by in silence. When previously God had sent prophets after prophets to speak to his people. But then silence for over 400 years. We get anxious if someone doesn't WhatsApp us back in five minutes. You see the two checks, they're gray, and then they turn blue, and then nothing. You're like, does this person not like me? Why, are they, aren't, why aren't they responding to me? And we get anxious. Right? For all intents and purposes, God's people felt that they had been forgotten and abandoned by God. But it was even worse for the shepherds of that day. The shepherds of that day were considered the lowest class in Israel. They were poor and dirty, uneducated. They were outcasts of society. They couldn't fill judicial offices. They couldn't testify in court. And the Jewish Mishnah, which is their oral tradition, said that no one should feel obligated to rescue a shepherd if they ever fell into a pit. That's pretty bad. There was no hope for self-betterment by working harder to become better and climb the socioeconomic ladder. The shepherds were trapped in their status. They had it bad. They were not only seemingly abandoned by God along with the rest of Israel, but they had also been rejected by their own people too. They were at the bottom, the very least of the least. And what's crazy is that God chose to include them in the birth of his son, Jesus. The poor and the lowly, not the religious, but the rejected. Now, why would he come to the shepherds? Because he would go to such great lengths to sovereignly orchestrate all of these things of inconvenient events surrounding the birth of Jesus so that Jesus would be easily accessible to the least of these, to the shepherds. By the way, most of these details are in verses 1 through 6. First, there's the registration. So everyone has to go back to their hometown. God directs the hearts of unbelieving men and world powers to lead Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Secondly, all the inns are filled, and people turn away a pregnant lady. That's pretty cold. Okay? And Joseph, who was of the royal line of King David, surely God could have made room for him in an inn in his own hometown. And then third, he leads them to something like a barn 
so that the shepherds could come in because they would have been denied access at the inns. Why go through all this trouble? Why go through all this hassle to make Jesus accessible to the shepherds? And this is really important. It is to show that the gospel, that the good news is for all people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people. It doesn't matter how much money, your family name, your status, your religious background, or anything else. As the famous evangelist Billy Graham once said, the ground is level for everyone at the foot of the cross. We literally see this in verse 10. The gospel, the good news, is for all people. And he especially comes to those who are broken and lowly. It flew in the face of the religious and social leaders of that day that they wouldn't be the ones to receive the news of Jesus' birth because Christ came to save sinners, not the self-righteous. Now, one point of clarity real quick, right? Rich people are not bad people inherently or people out of God's favor, okay? The amount of money that someone has doesn't make them good or bad. Sure, they could have gotten it in bad ways, but there are lots of people who are poor and also deny God and do bad things. Okay, there's a difference between being rich and having a love of money. Those are two different things. A love of money can keep you from God if it's your false God because you think and it makes you feel like you're self-sufficient. But whether rich or poor, to, to some, God gives in plenty and he entrusts more to them and to others less. We don't know his reasoning why, but both are called to steward what God has given to them in, in ways that honor him and recognize that they are in desperate need of him. Again, the gospel is good news for all people. God had promised that he would send a son who would be their long-awaited savior, that he would be born in Bethlehem. And these promises were made over 700 years before the birth of Christ. God was showing them that they had not been forgotten, that he was faithful to his promises. So God sovereignly arranged all the events and circumstances around Christ's birth to get to the shepherds. And in the same way, he comes to where you are in your fears and brokenness. You may have been through some things just to get here this morning. Maybe you feel like you've been forgotten or shut out like the shepherds. Some of you have lost a job, lost a friend, a spouse has left, your kids won't talk to you, you're tired of being single, or you're facing the consequences of poor decisions that you've made. And in your heart, there's fear that it might not ever get better. You feel like God has surely abandoned you, and he doesn't care for you because he's allowed for these things to happen. But it's not that God has abandoned you. It's that we're feeling the effects of having once abandoned God. By our sin, we have told him that we know better. We're better off without him. And the only thing that has, that has brought us was pain and suffering. And this is the beauty of the gospel is that that is the very place that Jesus meets us. He says, you've run from me and you've rejected my purpose and my presence with you. But I'm going to show you my love and faithfulness to you by coming down to where you are as a baby, to be Emmanuel, God with us, God with you. You see, Christmas has a special message for those whose lives aren't characterized by joy and triumph. 
Christmas is not supposed to be the crowning jewel on a life that is filled with happiness. Rather, Christmas is a profound message of hope for the poor, for those whose lives are messy, who feel insignificant, the forgotten, the overlooked, the broken, the brokenhearted, those whose lives are filled with fear and despair and guilty of sin. Jesus is shouting at you. If you feel this way, if you've ever felt this way, I came for you. So Jesus humbled himself to be with us, to meet us in our grief, in our brokenness, so that we don't have to be afraid. It's like a child clinging to a parent when they're afraid so that they can feel safe. That's what the God of the universe does for us. He pulls us into his arms so that we don't have to be paralyzed or controlled by fear because he's got us. So the first thing is that Jesus comes down to where we are so we don't have to fear. The second way that he addresses our fears is that Jesus raises us up to where he is. So he comes down to where we are and he raises us up to where he is. He does this by being three things to us as we see in verse 11. It says that Jesus is Savior and Christ the Lord. First, he's Savior. The fact that God sent us a Savior means that we needed to be rescued. That makes sense, right? The fire department doesn't just show up at your house to put out a fire if there's no fire. Right? That doesn't make any sense. Okay, we were separated from God under his wrath, guilty and deserving of death for our sin. Pastor John Piper, he says that the incarnation is an indictment on our sin before it is a celebration. Now, the question that many people have naturally about heaven is, how much good do I have to do to get on God's good side, to make it into heaven? And every religion says, do enough good. If you do enough good things, maybe you'll please God enough and you can make it into heaven. But the Bible teaches us that our hearts are so wicked and sick that everything that we do is tainted. On our own, we could never do enough to earn the forgiveness and the approval of God. The real problem we all face, the root of all of our fears, is that our relationship with God is utterly broken. And in contrast to all the other religions in the world, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is finished. I have done everything necessary to save you. God gifted us a Savior because it's what we needed the most. Right? It, we didn't just need more comfort, more money, better health, the right leaders in government, education, or breakthroughs in science. Because our real problem is not hunger or violence, justice, or lack of knowledge. These are just symptoms of being in a broken world of being a broken people. Our problem is that we needed saving from sin and death. And as Savior, Jesus, he gives us his perfect righteousness so that we can stand before the Father without fear, in full acceptance, just as Christ himself does. He lifts us up to his status before God. That's why it's called gift righteousness, because it's a totally undeserved gift. It's why the text says, that unto you is born. It's a gift. If it wasn't a gift, it would be a wage, something that's earned, something that you deserve or work for. And to believe that we deserve anything good apart from Christ at its core is self-righteousness. Moving on to Christ. 
we'll address this one quickly. Christ is a title. It means Messiah. So Jesus is the regal one, the Messiah from the line of David, the anointed one, the one that would fulfill all the hopes and dreams of the nation of Israel. Okay, he's the one that people have been waiting for, the promised one who would come to bring stability and peace and justice and hope. Likewise, everything you have ever needed and hoped for and dreamed of is found in him. Your desire for comfort, for security, identity, belonging, love are all in him. He is all in all. In him, all of God's promises find their yes. In his presence, there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And under his final rule, there will be perfect joy and peace. Nothing will ever go wrong, and there will be nothing to fear. And that might sound too good be, to be true for many who are beaten down and weary, but it's coming as surely as Jesus came the first time, and he promises to lift us up to this glorious future. So he's Savior. And he's Christ. And lastly, he's the Lord. This baby that was born unto us was God himself in the flesh. He is the absolute sovereign authority, the one true God. And this is extremely important that Jesus was God too and not just a man. I've, sh I've shared this with you before, but here it is again. The penalty for sin against God was man's responsibility to pay because we're the ones that wrong God, but we couldn't repay God because of our finite and our tainted hearts. Only God himself could satisfy wrath against sin, against an, old, uh, an infinite and holy God. But why should God have to repay for sin when he was the one that was wrong? So Jesus, the God-man, fully God, and fully man was necessary to save us from death. That's why there's no under name under heaven by which we can be saved. Now, this pronouncement that Jesus, this baby Jesus, was God, the Lord, was confrontational in the backdrop of this story 2,000 years ago because of the Rome, in the Roman Empire, only Caesar was Lord. He was the one calling the shots. He was the ruler of the entire known world, and he brought about a so-called peace called the Pax Romana. Now, note just the incredible contrast between Caesar, who claimed to be Lord, and Jesus. Caesar had everything a man could dare dream of attaining. He had money, power, fame, education, status. And what's left of his kingdom today? Just some ruins. Christ, on the other hand, is the ruler of the universe who created everything from nothing. His throne is in heaven with riches unimaginable to a human being, yet he left everything to be our Savior. And at his trial, at Jesus' trial before his death, Christ wouldn't even stand before Caesar, but in front of his puppets. And yet Christ's kingdom will know no end. Jesus is the true king who brings peace and raises us up as his co-heirs to share in his riches and inheritance. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, is Jesus our Lord or do we act like Caesar and live as if we are Lord of our own lives? Who do you live for? What's your life's mission? 
most people are okay with Jesus saving them, fulfilling all their hopes and dreams of a glorious future where there's no more suffering, but they get uncomfortable with the idea that he wants full control of your life now. He wants you to pick up your cross and follow him to death. That kind of sounds crazy. That doesn't seem pleasant. And so many people treat him as just another positive influence in their life. And they won't give up 100% control to him. But Jesus was not just a teacher or a life coach or a social media influencer. He's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And so if he's not Lord of all in your life, then he's not Lord at all. There's no middle ground. Yet it seems like a frightening reality, a frightening thing in a life to accept, to pick up your cross and to follow him. But consider to whom you're giving your life. He's good and he's loving, only desiring what's best for you. Look at what he's done for you on the cross. So you can safely trust him and call him Lord because he came down to be with you and he raises you up to be with him. This is the message of Christmas. Don't be afraid. God is in control and is sovereignly working all things for the great good of his people. Believe his promises to you. He says, fear not, for I'm with you. Fear not, for I am the Lord, your God. Fear not, I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my right hand. Fear not about your life. Cast all your anxieties on me because I care for you. Fear not, for I am your light and your salvation. Whom shall you fear? I am the stronghold of your life. Of whom shall you be afraid? Fear not, I will never leave nor forsake you. Fear not, for I have not abandoned you, but have come down to you. Fear not even death, because I have died for you and give you victory over the grave. Fear not that this life of suffering will be forever, because I am raising you up to be with me. Fear not. We need to let the birth of Christ and the cross speak louder to us than our fear or any of our pain. In this Christmas story in Luke 2, you see the gospel, that it is good news of great joy. Jesus, the great shepherd, the true shepherd, became lowly and outcast shepherd for us. He came to earth where there was no room for him in the end so that we might have a place in heaven. He came not to show us how to save ourselves, but to save us. He gave up his glory and peace so that we could have it. He was born in a manger for animals. It wasn't a place fitting for the God of the universe, but it was fitting for the Lamb of God who would be slain to take away the sins of the world. And so he would become what we are, sinful human flesh that we, he might make us what he is, an eternal son and daughter of God. On the cross, Jesus was abandoned and forsaken by the Father for you and me so that we would never be. And Jesus didn't just break the 400 years of silence. When he came, he took the silence of God upon himself on the cross. Do you see? Do you see why the gospel is good news of great joy for all people? It's good news. It's not news to go fix yourself, to get your life together, to overcome your fears. No, it's Jesus 
who is your Savior, the Christ, the Lord, that he came to rescue us out of darkness into his everlasting kingdom. Jesus, who was without sin, died for the penalty of sin, taking on its full power and penalty so that he could put away sin forever. This is how the birth of Christ addresses our fears. He would come down to us where we were in our lowly, fearful state. And in the great exchange, he would raise us up to where he is one day to a place where there are no more fears. In Jesus Christ, in his son, God gives us the gift that will give us the greatest joy, which is himself. And he gives us now two new names. Instead of sinner and broken, dead in our sin, he calls us children, son, and daughter of the Most High God, and co-heir with Christ. No wonder, no wonder the angels burst out into worship saying, glory to God in the highest. And the shepherds went glorifying and praising God and changed their lives forever. No greater news has ever been shared. And there are only two responses that are appropriate to this news. To worship, worship God for this great news and to tell other people. For those of you who are believers, like the shepherds, your response, the only appropriate response is to worship and to tell people about it. Okay, if you've seen the beauty of Jesus, then that's what you naturally do. Okay, imagine this Christmas, tomorrow, you got the most amazing gift that you could ever imagine. Okay, you fill in the blank. Whatever the biggest thing that your heart could imagine in terms of a, an earthly gift, maybe it's a house or a car, whatever your heart desires, you fill in the blank the biggest earthly thing that you can think of. For the next several weeks, and probably your entire life, you'd be talking about how December, Christmas of 2023, you got a new car, or you got a new house, whatever it is, right? You tell about it for the rest of your life. And so if you're not telling people about Jesus and what he's done for you, you really have to ask yourself, whether you really know him and whether he's all that wonderful to you. Right? It is, it's deeply ironic that during the season centered around giving gifts, it's hard to tell other people about the gift of Jesus, the gift of life that he has to offer them. The shepherds went and told not because they were commanded, but because of the beauty of what they had seen and experienced. And like the shepherds, the people God almost seems to favor is using people who the world sees as lowly, of not having accomplished much, of not having a name and having nothing to offer. He can and wants to use you. He wants to use us. So this gift that you and I have, it is good news of great joy for all people. And he simply wants us to go and tell what we've personally experienced. Worship and spreading the good news are the natural overflow of a heart that truly knows him. And I pray that we, as a church, that will be faithful to do them this Christmas. I want you to bow, bow your heads, invite you to bow your heads. And I want, us, I want us to just sit here for a moment and soak in what God has done for us. 
And as you're doing that, in just a moment, our volunteers are going to come and they're going to start passing out the bread and the cup for communion. The bread and the cup represent the very purpose for which Christ was born unto us as a baby. He came into this world to take our place of death and to give us life. For those of you who aren't followers of Jesus, we're really glad that you're here this morning. And we hope that you'll continue to come to hear more about Jesus, how he loves you, how he is pursuing you and desires a relationship with you. But the bread and the cup, they're not for you today. Instead of taking communion, I want you to consider receiving Christ personally right now. That's what the bread and the cup represent. They're symbols that represent Jesus. He is a gift that is freely given to you, but you have to make the decision to receive it. The passage this morning says that peace is given to those with whom he is pleased. That means peace is given to those, the one who believes in his son, Jesus. Ultimately, you have two choices on what to do with this gift. It doesn't matter how many times you've heard the story or what your family believes or what your friends believe. You personally have to make a decision. You can receive what Christ has done for you, or you can reject Christ and therefore be rejected by God. But you're here for a reason today. Let your fears point you to God and receive him today. To do that, you can pray a simple prayer like this. You can say to God, God, I know that I've sinned against you. And I repent. I'm turning from living as if I'm God and I'm turning back to you, the true God. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you for sending him to die for my sins so that I can have new life in him. I trust him and I give my life to him. 